Gratitude and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness explores the nature of grief, the gratitude that sustains us, and the greatness we achieve as we find our strength. I'm your host, Sarah Shaul. Inspiration for this podcast is fueled by the discovery that people all around me are grieving, and so many keep a lid on their grief. But sometimes we betray our cover. Kara and I were on a photo shoot when she casually dropped a heavy mention of her own grief, which left me hanging and thinking. After the shoot, I had to follow up with her, and we sat down and talked about grief and much more. Kara's insight, perspective, and experience are painful, beautiful, and inspiring. We were working together on a photo shoot. And you'd asked me how I was doing. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm doing pretty well and quickly got you up to speed on what was happening in my world, but left it relatively light. And then, and I said, how are you? And you said, well, you know, Sarah, I've been grieving for a long time, but ever since the election, everybody's grieving. I finally feel like I fit in or mm. I belong. And I was like, Wow, <laughs> that was such a heavy thing to drop in that short period of time because then we we're back to work and there was no place to pick back up on yeah, that. I love and, doing that. <laughs> <laughs> and you left me thinking, well, we've worked together for what, four or five years now? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I always love working with you, but I've always known there's this depth to you that I hadn't really had a window into because we're busy working moms who... Yeah. We get to work together and that's it. And so it was so great that we got a chance to hang out and I got to ask you about this grief that you'd been experiencing for so long and this sense of belonging that you now feel. Mm. I feel like there's just such a need for us to be able to talk about grief and not feel this guilt about bumming people out because I don't think it necessarily has to be a bummer conversation. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think when you're when it's tempered by time enough, so there's enough distance there, right. I think it makes it a little bit easier. You know, if people ask me about it now, I can kind of laugh while I deliver it. That seems so twisted to me. It's not as heavy. It's not as severe or consuming or suffocating that there's been enough time where I can look and say, oh, I, I had to go through that. So I would ask the world, how do I hurt less? And then that became finding out the ways that I would hurt less. And that became then reaching out to other people who were hurting and trying to give them the information. Hey, I found a couple of these things. If they help you, here you go. It's compelling to want to be available to other people while they're hurting. And that, I think, defines a lot of purpose that we're given. Not a lot of people who are open for those conversations until that like ripe right. time. Or even how to help people who are close to people who are hurting. Yeah. That whole feeling of, I don't know what to say and I don't know what to do. So I'm just going to disappear for a while. Like right now, this whole um, Harvey Weinstein case has really brought to light yet again, you know, the misogynistic nature of our culture 
and I can't remember who it was, but some actress started this hashtag Me Too. Mm-hmm. And it to me, it was fascinating, all these women that are, you know, basically saying, hey, I've also been the object of sexual assault or rape. Yeah. Yes. So many men are just quiet on that front. Like, I'm just going to sit this one out. And Mm. I'm really proud of the guys that aren't sitting it out. Yeah. But I I did a quick little tally. Less than 10% of the reactions to these Me Too posts, less than 10% are reactions from men. Mm -hmm. It's just women getting together to shore up other women. I think really what that is, I don't think that men don't agree with these women. Mm. They really just feel like, I, I don't know. I don't, oh, yeah, I, they're not faced by it because they have no one. Yeah. And they don't know really what the boundary is. Like, do I have a legitimacy to talk on this subject? And I, I think that's really fascinating to me. Why is that so hard? We're talking about the extremes, basically. There's people who just shut down and avoid it altogether. Something yeah. hard, right? Something yeah. that makes them uncomfortable or that they aren't quite ready for, to deal with, for someone else even. Yeah. So they either avoid it altogether or the other side is they try to justify their own experiences by saying, but I had this one experience where a woman hurt me once. And you're like, that's ah. completely different than, you know, the statistics. But it's kind of the same way where some people will insert themselves into your grief yes. um, in a way that's, well, it's happening to me. Your divorce is devastating to me. This loss is devastating for me to watch you have to go through where it kind of puts pressure on the griever to get through it for the benefit of that person. Too. You're not the first person who's brought that up. I spoke to someone else recently who said that that people were projecting their own grief onto mm-hmm. him. Oh, yeah. And that felt incredibly uncomfortable. Every person is different. Every person will grieve differently. Kara has had some years to contemplate how we can be there and help those who are grieving. So I had a full-term stillbirth. I was 41 weeks pregnant with my son and went into labor, and it seemed naturally progressing, and then it went sad fast, and um, I lost the baby. That was definitely the hardest experience, obviously, that I've gone through. Interestingly enough, over the years, that's 11 years, I just hit the mark. I get a lot of emails from people, like people I don't know, some people I do, um, who are saying, I had a friend who went through this. How do I help them? So-and-so told me you might know something about this. And so I feel like this is what I've been writing, (laughs) is the idea of not avoiding them, right? And then not also trying to make it about you, that there's a, a place of just showing up and letting the unfolding happening, like let it happen and let it, let the person have their emotions, give the space, prepare it, make sure to list out the things you can offer. If it's a triggering thing for you in some way, because you haven't dealt with something that you have, you're allowed to say that. You're allowed to actually be pretty truthful and say, I don't know what the hell I'm doing with this. I want to be available to you and I'm scared to say or do the wrong thing. That's way more efficient than just messing it all up, you know, Right. is going in with honesty. There's a human who is hurting and so, so painfully struggling. I mean, loss, especially the first couple of months and that to the first year, that stretch, it's just about surviving it. It is so deeply hard to be alive when you are that sad 
when it hurts and affects you that much. And so I think being able to hold people and say, we know, like in Jewish tradition, they greet you every week in synagogue just by like standing up, acknowledging who's died in the last year. Like, we still see you. Eyes on the the hurting person, right? I love that. And I, I imagine if you're in a community of worship, you have that, but so many of us don't. Yeah. And so many of us are moving through this world. So you're someone I've known for four or five years. And, you know, I didn't know any of this about you. Not that I need to know everybody's business, but I think once we know there's pain in someone's life, I think it gives us pause to be gentler with how we approach people. Yeah. And I think the more we realize almost everybody is experiencing some... None of us are making it out alive. <laughs> <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean exactly? What do you say that? <laughs> I mean, that's, a, that's actually a poster from an artist, Nathaniel Russell, who's amazing, but... It's true. We're all going to die. We're all going to be affected by death at some point, whether it's our own or the people around us. So it's so funny how we're so surprised by it all the time, right? Isn't it? Yeah, but it's such a part of life. But there's not a manual for it. People Mm -hmm. aren't talking about it. They actually avoid talking about it. Yes. To the point where when I had my stillbirth and I got a divorce, my grandma could only talk to me about my divorce. She couldn't talk about the baby at all. All I wanted to talk about was the baby. Yeah. So I wasn't being met in that space. I had to contain it in order to make it presentable to people and what they were comfortable with. So ironically, while you were needing this comfort, you were making sure Having to the comfort, comfort those around you yeah. or make sure they were not uncomfortable about what happened to you. Yeah. I did that for a long time where even trying to tell somebody my story that I'd say, okay, I'm, I'm just going to tell you this part right now and maybe I'll, I'll give you the rest later because it might okay. overwhelm you. I've had enough trauma where I could talk significantly about the gamut of things, but you can't do that in one sitting. So I do like death in one sitting, maybe assault in a different sitting, you know. <laughs> oh, man. A weird background, childhood in another setting. You shared with me also that your divorce was related to your stillbirth, your loss of your child. Yeah. I was really young when I got married. I don't think I had developed any of the tools that I needed to have and sustain a relationship. I'm still not sure if I have those, (laughs) but when I got pregnant, it was an amazing surprise. And when we lost the baby, I I felt very alone in that. And Maybe we both were young in different ways where we couldn't meet each other in that. It was a very different experience for both of us, too. And a lot of marriages don't survive loss. Statistically speaking, I I think that it's kind of like a pretty ridiculous divorce rate after the loss of a child. At the time, I was part of a Christian community, and I stepped away from it. I really had to give it all up and kind of test God again and figure that out where my ex-husband really— found a lot of solace and comfort in that and kind of went that route. I made a lot of poor decisions, but I was a really broken person. I was so sad. And I had I nannied infants up until that point. Oh, that must have been... Oh, it was terrible because then when I wanted to career switch, we were advised that we shouldn't make big decisions during like a a grief like that. (sighs) So I had to go back watching infants. That, of course, set me off. It's like I signed up 
And no one was saying anything about it. Like, oh, that might not be a good decision. I was signing up for every possible trigger. So of course, me 11 years later can see this, but I had lived with so much guilt and shame since then. But of course I ran. Of course everything fell apart because I kept inserting myself into more pain. It was just unbearable. Do you feel like if maybe a, a different counselor, a different counseling, do you think that could have made a big difference? Because I can't even imagine how somebody could suggest that you shouldn't make big changes when the line of work you're in yeah. just reminds you every moment Yeah, of who cares? Go back to school then if you just need a break from it, you know? What's the worst going to happen? But a lot of people think that they know what's best for you in your life. And it turns out if you are sitting with yourself, you actually do. I think, though, when you are sitting with yourself and in deep pain, then you're kind of second guessing everything. Sure. So you're looking to whoever to tell you they could be putting their own agendas on you, too. Like, like who, for example? Did you have anyone that was putting their own agendas on you that you can think of? Well, I think that you were talking about projecting other grief mm -hmm. or having to advocate for yourself. I didn't want to go and be around babies. I didn't want to go to um, church and be around babies. I didn't want to go to work and be around babies. I just didn't want to be around babies. Yeah. It was way too painful. And so I moved to New York on a whim where there are no babies that you, you don't have to see babies <laughs> right. if you don't want to. <laughs> right. So that served me for the years that I was there. But How long did it take you to make that change? To open my heart back up to babies. <laughs> well, well, that too, but I'm thinking from the time that you experienced that tragedy to the time that you moved to New York. How long did it take you to say, I got to trust myself and Dan oh. make that change counter to what counseling I received? I don't know if it, the way that you're saying it makes it sound like I, it was a really well thought out plan. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to just believe in myself now and really show them. But it does seem like that because it sounds like you were second guessing yourself and you finally were like, well, Screw in it. real time, I was like, ah, I feel suffocated. I feel like I can't do what I need to do. I need to just be sad. I need to. Yeah. Because yeah. you have to keep it together while you're watching these little babies. And yeah, and while everyone's watching you. My entire community was uncomfortable with my sadness at some yeah. point. Like, right. they're good for a month to three months right. or something. But then no one else is thinking about that loss. It's not front page news anymore. It's What was that timeline? Like, between the time that you lost your baby the time you got divorced to the time you went to New York like what all less than a year it was probably oh, less wow. than six months wow because yeah I imagine that to be a much longer timeline no it just unraveled really fast we grieved it in very different ways it felt really isolating mm -hmm. and I can't say we had you know our shit together before that point mm -hmm. but we didn't have enough of it together to sustain that loss sure and so I think it was really really separate and like I said, I wanted the freedom to feel what I needed to feel. I have these categories of people in my life, and I think we all have them. I call them cheerleaders and champions. The cheerleaders are like the people who work at New Seasons that remember that your kids like the pineapple stickers and ask you how... Actually, my son had surgery two years ago, and I remember one day, one of the regular checkout guys, I saw him, and... He's like, how are you doing? I said, actually, my son's having surgery tomorrow. <laughs> and um, he was so sweet. And then the next time I went in, how's your son doing? I mean, uh, he remembered. I hope he's doing okay. It's like, he's great. It worked great. I mean, these are cheerleaders, these daily. There's a woman at the gym that I go to. And she's, she's 
there almost every morning and she says, you made it. Every day that I, I see her, they walk in. She goes, you did it. You made it. I haven't even started my workout yet. There's that category of cheerleaders that I think help you get through just that day. But then there's these champion people in your life and they're the people that really have your back and they really love you and they really want what's best for you. And, yeah. and sometimes it's a gesture or an effort that they make or something simple that they say. It's like somebody threw you a rope and you're able to hold on because of that. Did you feel during that time, did you have cheerleaders or champions that helped get you through that? Or did you feel that was completely missing and you had to make a change in your life to access that. I had those people and it was, I don't know if we knew the depths that we could reach, but I felt supported because I was given the space to make my own decisions. I can think of, well, I can think of a couple of things, even as you talk about cheerleaders versus champions. My community surrounded me and I had about three days in the hospital where I felt sort of drugged, like in a haze. It felt like I was still and everything was moving around me, you know, one of those like movie montages. Sure. And um, But I had women, a woman who had been keeping a blog at the time and she cut out all of these words and pasted them on a box. And another woman sewed onesies together as a mini quilt. Another guy Aww. wrote out a short story about when he had heard about what had happened and gave some significance to it. It was just these really beautiful kind of homemade efforts of real vulnerability and desperation to say like, we're here. I don't know how we're here. We're here if you need it. And so I saw those. Beautiful. Oh, very beautiful. I, I still think about this. A woman I barely knew weeped on my arms and petted them while I just sat there in and out of sleep. But it was kind of insane to watch people show up and that kind of love was really, really breathtaking to witness in this life, to be surrounded by that. But the other people, the significant people, are my friend Mandy and my friend Karen, who were right there in it in this way of, they might not have agreed with every decision I was making, but they made space for it because I had to work it out. The only way we learn things is through our bodies. You have to do the thing that you're supposed to do. You have to just live it out in order to get through it. And I think that they gave me the space to do that. They made no judgments. Maybe internally they did. Maybe behind my back they did. I don't know. But I never felt judged. I always felt held in love. Do you think that it's easier for a community to gather or a tribe to gather around women than it is for them to gather around men? And do you think that possibly you and your ex-husband had experienced just that? And do mm. you think that could have contributed why you grieve differently? Hmm. Definitely it's easier for women. Who, women will surround you. Women are amazing. The worst woman is an amazing woman. <laughs> you know, I am a big fan of women and female relationships. Men don't have it that same way. I definitely agree. I think that could have played into it, but the reality too is that I was carrying the baby. Yeah. And I was fully present for that experience. Every day talking to this baby, all I wanted since I was a little girl was to be a mother. So this happening to me was amazing. If you know anything about me, I cry every day, multiple times a day at the silliest, dumbest, everyday kind of stuff. Sunset's so beautiful, how do we get this life? And I'm sobbing every night. I get 10 months with this person growing him and I'm feeling everything and I'm talking to him all the time. 
well, I'm also around babies, so I understand, like, I can see the entire circle of all of it yes. and how it's connected. Yes. I think that there's no possible way, even a man's best efforts, he couldn't understand what it's like to grow a person. Right. The connection was very different. And I don't think it comes until babies first come out and then probably not again. They get a little rush when the babies are more interactive. It's different. But even just the rush of people surround you, and I can even see it visually, this group of people coming around you and him being isolated over here. And I think the community we're in definitely came together around both of us. And I think that he really flourished from that. And that was great. But dare I say that the loss was a little bit more significant to me. You have a daughter. I do. <laughs> that she's happened, really awesome. Yes. But you have some tragedy around her father. Yeah. That's a hard one. And I have this loss from 11 years ago. I've had lots of therapy, mm -hmm. lots of conversation around it. I found someone who had lost a baby as well, who reached out to me. And I kept in touch with her and she carried me through a year. So having people who've gone before you, I think is imperative. All of that to say... I wound up pregnant, hilarious life, how that works. And unfortunately, the person that I had this baby with had some struggles of his own and he ended up passing away. It's hard to talk about it because it, it didn't happen that long ago. This was six years ago. And I haven't even, I mean, I just began to unravel it because I think there was this point of like, I have to show up for this child, put it on a shelf. It propelled me into therapy, and I went in like, here are the key players, here is the trauma. And I ended up peeling down to all of these layers, completely avoiding the one that brought me in until this last summer. I just started dealing with it. So it's really hard to speak into because I don't feel like I have the same wisdom that I know I've earned from this other loss yes. that I've spent some time with and really observed and held. It's understandable because to some extent, the first loss that we talked about it was so much about you, yeah, you and your ex-husband, but more about you as we just talked about just how physically, viscerally, emotionally, you felt it. But we're dealing with another human being now who doesn't have a father. Yeah. And so you have this added responsibility beyond you managing your own feelings and, and having to make really big, important decisions. Like, when do I... Talk to her about all of this. Yeah, and, and how do I answer these huge questions? She must have big questions. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun trying to navigate. But what I've learned so far is that I don't have to have all the answers. Mm -hmm. I've been really trying to pretend or believe, maybe they're the same thing, that the world has got my back. It's going to unfold how it needs to unfold. And I think along with that, I don't push any conversation. I let her ask the questions and I keep it open. So we'll have conversations and you'd be surprised for being a curious person. I only get one or two hard questions in these moments. And I'm like, is there anything else? Like waiting for this whole ball to drop and it'll be like, no, that's all I needed. Kids have this kind of profound wisdom. She's like, I just want the information I want, and then I want to walk away. And so luckily it's been bite-sized, which is kind of a gift to me. If only the questions were always so easy. We want to avoid the suffering. 
it's kind of beautiful that we end up really lifting people up. I think when you get to the heart of what a human life is, you lift the people up who are suffering, right? That's part of the whole grief process. Like, you are suffering. We're going to lift you up. We're going to hold you until you're done suffering. And so you can be available to the next person. Yeah. And it's like a torch that's being passed. That's beautiful the way you say it. I believe you and I have also touched on this idea or fact. We are never done grieving. Yeah. Because grief is not something, okay, you manage oh, cleaning my hands up. of this. and um, I think you just get used to it. I tried to explain that to somebody where I was like, look, I don't understand grief, but I'm familiar with it. It's like someone took your crystal fine china and replaced it with a paper plate. It still does its job. It takes a little bit to get used to. And so you end up developing new tools to deal that's essentially what it is. The grief is still happening, but now I can move through it a lot faster. I, you know, hold it without being consumed by it. Right. That's just a long practice. I'm hoping, you know, not even to take other people's stuff personally in the year 2037. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really important for people to understand, too, that I don't think grief is something to ever get over. Things can reawaken our grief but I think a lot of times it's a reminder of what we've lost. And what we've lost are these wonderful people. Your son who had so much potential in this world, yeah. right? Yeah. And what he could have been. And your daughter's dad who had so much potential and what he could have been. Yeah. And, and what drew you to him to begin with and what you loved about him. And that's where we have to turn into our, I guess, our gratitude for having mm -hmm. known, having had those experiences, relationships. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, you didn't get to have a relationship with your son, except for, I guess, what you were sharing about getting to talk to him while he was in the womb. And Oh, yeah. Well, so many people sit through their entire pregnancies complaining. I had a good friend who was having difficulty getting pregnant for several years. I got pregnant, and I basically was like, this sucks to be, have this experience. I don't want to be robbed from the joy. She doesn't want to hate me or resent me for it. So I had an honest conversation with her. I don't know if you get your time. I'm not going to sit here and try to promise you that it's going to happen to you, but you can be as much of a part of this if you want to. And she was there for all of the appointments. She was there for the labor and the loss, all of it with me. And she got pregnant right after the loss, actually, which was so profound and beautiful and amazing. But within that, I think that I felt so thankful she was kind of tempering it for me. I was so thankful. My body blew up. I gained like 80 pounds. It, I was uncomfortable and swollen. It wasn't sitting pretty on me at all. But I was thankful every single day because I could grow the baby, that I could have this opportunity and this experience. I have no regrets then because if I would have complained and walked away from it, that would have been a whole nother grief of not really being there with the moment. Giving birth to her daughter allowed Kara to be present in an entirely new way. It's like a practice that gets deepened. I think the more you practice it, the easier it gets. And so it's really enjoyable to have that. I didn't know. I had no idea that I could have this with another person. I asked Kara if giving birth to her daughter may have lessened the pain of the loss of her first child. There are a lot of layers to this grief. There are a lot of grieves, I think, within this, this big one. And that was definitely part of it. I don't think I would go around telling people, like, you lose a child, go ahead and have one so you can make up, like, a replacement or something. That's, it would feel too sudden. Um, but I do remember when I got pregnant, I was terrified. I thought I was going to have to go through the full 10 months or 40 weeks and lose a child again. I didn't 
honestly, this is insane to me. I didn't anticipate during my pregnancy having an actual live baby. I just was like, gotta get through this again. So it really felt like you were gonna repeat the- Oh, yeah. Did you, now, was there any reason to believe that? No, I was just so afraid. Mm. I was so afraid to trust it. It's like getting your heart broken and then having to say, sign me back up. You want lots of time because you think that's gonna heal it. And time definitely is helpful, but you have to take the risk just to put yourself back out there. The pregnancy was scary. I had- I'd fainted a couple of times. It was very different. I think it was very fear-driven. I was growing love and mm-hmm. love and fear. The more that the love grew, the fear had to get out of there. It was like a deep, unconventional counseling to be pregnant with this child and have to really meet everything and give it up, let it go so that she could just take up more of her space, that I didn't have to cover her in all my fear. I was just thinking of that imagery that you mentioned earlier about the bird with, oh, with two, two wings, wings and not one. Yeah. And I was seeing the fear and the love as yeah, being the two Yeah, I mean, wings. it's contrast. I think you have to have all things. And I was telling a friend today that I think simultaneously holding dualities, like two opposing things, is the beginning of all wisdom. If you can say, both of these can exist, we don't have to do one or the other. But I think that's exactly what it was. It taught me that, that I could still make room. It didn't have to be so severe. It's balanced. A little bit ago, you said something about, you believe that the world has your back. Mm -hmm. Okay, now you've been through a lot of crap. Yeah. A lot. But I truly believe the reason why you believe the world has your back is because you're full of gratitude and you're not seeing all the crap that's happened and is happening in the world as something that you're discouraged by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were no promises this was going to be easy or that we were going to make it out alive. There are no promises. If you're in it, you might as well make the best out of it. And within that, like, I can't go back and change that. But there was a day I'd worked this photo shoot and there was a spread of food and I overate so much. (laughs) And I went home and I was uncomfortably bloated, just Uh like huge. My stomach was swollen looking where I was like, I look pregnant again. And I took a shower and I sat there touching my stomach that was in pain. But I remember thinking, whoa, this feels like my pregnant belly. And I got sad, but immediately said out loud, thank you. Thank you that I had that experience. I was grateful even for that experience. And then I was just laughing for the next couple of days. Did I really get to this point in the grief that I could say thank you for that hurt? That's ridiculous. Am I an insane person right now? But the things that I chased because of that and the way that I got in touch with myself and really kind of started insisting on my life, I mean, it transformed me in a way that I can't even begin to explain. I really believe and trust that there is a lot of wisdom in pain. And I'm so thankful to have that, no matter how isolating it is. You don't want to go blind when you've received sight, right? So I feel like, in a way, it gave me a new sight. There's a poet talks about, to know the depths of sorrow gives you the capacity to know the depths of joy. Yes. It does transform you. It's a gift in an expanded view of it. Of course, you're not going to see that in the moment. You can't say that to someone who's in their suffering. You wait. You're going to see. It's going to be beautiful, and you're going (laughs) to love it, and you're going to thank it. Yeah, it's not like that. You know, I've had periods in my life where I've felt really down, like really down. And I've said to myself, 
I have to know how it feels to be this sad for me to really appreciate when I'm really happy and joyful. Yeah. There are a lot of people moving through life that I wouldn't wish any of these losses or tragedies on anyone, but I think their capacity to see the spectrum, the possibilities of the spectrum, limit their ability to really fully embrace and feel joy. Well, that's the hard thing too, and people are presented sometimes, if they haven't cultivated any resiliency in their spirit and then they face a tragedy, they kind of get stuck there. That's really heartbreaking for me. There are a lot of other possibilities that you could consider right now that would free you or make you happier. So you having been there, how have you presented yourself as a cheerleader or champion to others? Mm. Well, I have learned primarily from my community. And we talk about people who are showing up. The real champions are just people who had no reason to show up for me who did. They just put themselves out there. And it wasn't like I was able to give anything back at the time either. So that's kind of an insane sort of love that I am forever grateful for because they really carried me through the first couple of years, especially by like offering homes to us and cars and childcare, like a lot of things. I think that I think that if there's anything I've learned since having to depend on other people in that way, raising this child by myself, is that love is action. And so seeing people show up in these ways of service and kind of knowing what they're showing up for is really beautiful to me. And that's something I want to be able to give back now. A lot of, I think, what I can offer is presence or listening. Mm -hmm. That is just like, what do you need? It's okay to be sad. Here's the container. I can hold you like a baby. I know that's weird. I'm willing to get weird with you in that way. (laughs) Or I can make you a meal. It's probably going to be bland, but there it is. (laughs) Um, To be able to really acknowledge the things that I could work with, even if they didn't seem as significant as offering someone a home or a car, you know. Each person. We have things to give each other. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And sometimes it's very practical. And that is a beautiful gift. And sometimes it's very emotional. And that's a beautiful gift. And I love what you said earlier, too, about being really honest with people. Yeah. I always hesitate. I personally hesitate to say, please give me a call, whatever you need. Let me know what you need. Yeah. Because that's such an empty gesture, in my opinion. No one's going to do that. There is this reluctance to ask for help. People don't generally ask for help. And things that sometimes people need help with seem monumental. It's really hard to ask for those things. Or they seem somewhat mundane. Or it seems false. If it's not specific and it's open-ended, it's like when you run into somebody you don't super know and you're like, yeah, we should do coffee sometime. Yeah, totally. We should. And then you go separate ways and you don't ever talk until the next time you run into each other and do the exact same. And what about when you have Facebook friends? You show up on their Facebook page for them or they show up for you on your Facebook page. But sometimes you see them in public and there's this kind of... Disconnect. Yeah. Like, I'm your Facebook friend, but I'm not your real life friend. Yeah. Not that anyone says that, but I've actually had that. And and that's another place I personally hesitate to engage. Yeah. When someone is sharing their sorrow on social media, I mean, I'm of an age where I find this very fascinating because I feel like it's so empty. It's a good place to learn about somebody's pain, I suppose, yeah. or when there's... At this level... When you say this level. Like a surface level. It's this, we don't know each other and I'm going to give, it feels what I call like emotionally pornographic. Ah. That suddenly you are given a really quick 
huge level of intimacy, emotional intimacy with a person you don't know. We didn't have an exchange leading up to that. All of a sudden, I just have this information. I have a really weird relationship with social media that I had to change because it felt like either too little or too much. And again, it feels like an empty gesture to just say, I'm so sorry. Yeah. You know, and then Mm -hmm. I'm all done with that. Yeah. On to the next. That just feels horrible. And to imagine that somebody is in so much pain that they share their pain on something like a social media platform, which the gamut of recipients to that message runs from vague acquaintances all the way to dear close friends. And then they put that out there. There's about a couple days worth of responses. And then you're on your own now. How can we really show up? Because that's not adequate and that's not enough. I mean, you're talking too about how do we use technology and the internet in order to have more real relationships because the fake stuff's not working. The people who are posting these status updates, there's this really huge thing. I want strangers and friends alike to understand my sorrow means they're probably suffering quite a bit, right? If it gets to there. For a lot of people, they have no problem sharing that kind of information to some extent, it could be a generational thing because yeah. I, I, I wonder that too. I witnessed a very young woman who had lost a child on social media, and I was sort of, I was a little disturbed by the beautifully curated Instagram posts that mm-hmm. addressed this loss of a child. Yeah, I mean, they're just the most gorgeous photos, and I thought, how do you curate grief? I feel like. I I had a really hard time personally with that. But I've also learned that, again, there's no right way to do it. Things have changed. And a a generation that feels so comfortable growing up. On that platform. That's where so much of their tribe lives. Yeah. The beauty of this conversation is we're face-to-face right now. And I'd like to see so much more of that for everybody, if that's what works for people. That's what I'm trying to shift it into right now. That's sort of my pullback from social media was to create more FaceTime with people, trying to engage them and still sharing in different ways, whether those are like tangible ways or sending things to people, even on a text message feels a little bit more personal to me. Than, oh, absolutely. So it's different. I FaceTime people a lot, which I'm sure drives them all crazy, but I want to see people's faces. I want to have real interactions and engagement and playfulness. And it can be challenging for women to make time for themselves, too. Everything is just a fine balance. We can't be open to everything all the time. We would extinguish ourselves. So I feel like you have to know the ebb and flow of your own spirit, which means you have to spend time with your own spirit. How do you spend time with your own spirit when you're a full-time mother and full-time single (laughs) mother? You know, I got sleeping on lockdown early on. I'd read every possible book when I was a nanny uh, for sleep schedules and infant care. I don't think I'm good at much in life, but I know I'm a really good mom (laughs) to an infant. Like I know how to do that really well. By the time she's five weeks, I had her sleeping through the night. Dang. And I need my sleep. I'm like one of those people. My mental health runs on like a really fine balance. And so everything has to be in its place, and sleep is a huge one for me. Now she's getting to sleep over stage, so that's a uh, new thing. And sleeping over with friends, Yeah, I imagine. Yeah, which overprotective mother, I'm still working that out, but that's helpful too. But the night times, I get her to bed at the same time. By 8.30, she is in bed. And then I hang out by myself. 
And sometimes it's usually just reading or watching a movie or something, but that won't even cut it. It has to be pretty intentional. At least once a week, I have to get some real solitude, introspection, get weird with myself a little bit. I think that yesterday I put on headphones and listened to an album and danced in my living room, completely silent because we live in a tiny apartment, so I can't just play music. It's not free like that. So... And I had to create my own silent disco, just to even get exercise in. But it was enough that I got the things I needed out. And sometimes it's just sitting down and crying or taking a long bath or something. But, you know, ebbs and flows. I'm just trying to trust them. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual in Portland, Oregon. This episode was produced and edited by Jack Saturn. And me. Sarah Shaul. The music was by Samantha Jensen. Visit us online at griefgratitudegreatness.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at griefgratitudegreat. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a review. Your feedback helps our show and helps us find new listeners. Your support allows us to keep doing this work, delivering insights and inspiration. We'd be pleased as punch if you share our show with your friends and anyone you think could benefit from listening in. We're excited to share more stories with you, so please join us again.